Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday morning. 79 days now until Election Day. Already, some voters are saying that they'd consider moving out of the country if they don't like the outcome. Not too far ago. Canada, maybe. Weighing on their minds, though, is whether the grass is any greener north of the border. That's a question that John Blackstone will examine in our Sunday morning cover story. It's been a long, hard campaign, and what could be more American than threatening to leave the country if your candidate comes up short? This whole thing about coming to Canada, I I just find it kind of presumptuous about Americans. Like, yeah, we're Americans. Who wouldn't want us, right? Moving to Canada, eh? What you need to know before you go. Ahead this Sunday morning. From Americans in Canada to an American in Paris. Leslie Caron starred in that classic movie more than 60 years ago. This morning, she's sharing her memories with Jane Pauley. Leslie Caron was just 19 years old when Jean Kelly whisked her away from post-war France to star in An American in Paris. Then suddenly you're in Hollywood. The stakes overflowed on the pledge. I thought there's enough food for a week. Is it true that once for dessert you ordered another steak? Yes, that is true. A full repast and dessert with Leslie Caron, later on Sunday morning. Never give up are words to live by for any Olympic marathon runner. And that most definitely includes the American Lee Cowan has been watching in action. He runs like the wind. Maybe even better, he glides. And this morning, he's in Rio, racing for gold. Two, three. I was put on this earth to touch people's lives. You know, and I hear it. Many people come to say thanks for the inspiration. I saw a lady that was paralyzed left side down, and she says, I did a marathon because of you. Ahead, Meb Kaflesky on his passion to give it all every step of the way. Connor Knighton is on the trail again this morning to a national park whose misleading name could lead you up the wrong tree. 1.6 million visitors a year flock to Joshua Tree National Park, a place where the namesake attraction is a bit of a misnomer. It's a member of the yucca family. As a matter of fact, the Latin name is yucca brevifolia. Ahead on Sunday morning, a tree that's not quite a tree. Martha Teichner visits 
papermakers on a roll. Michelle Miller makes some noise with late show band leader John Batiste. Steve Hartman makes some campers with an uncommon bond. Ahead. For me, it's just another race. I go out there and you know, do what I do best. Going the extra mile. But next... Happy Canada, Ottawa! Canada or bust. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You've heard people say it. If they get elected, I'm moving to Canada. Which got us to wondering, is the grass really greener up north? Our cover story is reported now by John Blackstone. On election night, 1980... Ronald Reagan appears to be heading toward a landslide electoral victory tonight. 21-year-old Barbara Kennedy was looking forward to another four years in Washington, D.C., working in the transportation department for the first president she would ever vote for, Jimmy Carter. All the other states uh, are shown in blue that Reagan has won. Carter's states show in red. After work, I went to vote, and things weren't looking so good at that point, so I went to my neighborhood bar, and things weren't looking so good at that point either. And I give you my sacred oath that I will do my utmost to justify your faith. There were a lot of people all lined up, crying in their beers over what the future might bring. And uh, this, this young lady was the reporter, and she was just asking people their feelings. Kennedy told her, I'm so depressed, I think I'll move to Canada. Going to Canada seemed like a natural choice for anyone to take. It's a choice thousands of Americans claim to be considering again this election year. If they don't like the next president. It's not realistic, it's silly. Pete McMartin is a columnist for the Vancouver Sun. This whole thing about coming to Canada, I just find it kind of presumptuous about Americans. Like, yeah, we're Americans, who wouldn't want us, right? Happy Canada, Ottawa! McMartin finds it mildly insulting that Canada is considered the refuge of last resort. It's like Americans are, are holding Canada up to their forehead and they're saying, if Donald Trump uh, it becomes president or Hillary becomes president, I'm going to shoot myself in the head with Canada. Like, like Canada is a fate worse than Canada. <laughs> you know, how would you feel? Oh. And another one. Air Canada is poking fun at the idea in a new ad campaign. Seems like a lot of you are talking about moving up here to Canada. It's very flattering and we certainly have the room. Reminding Americans some things are different up north. But before you sell your house to book a one-way ticket, maybe it makes sense to check us out first. Make it a long weekend. Take a look around. Try your hand with the metric system. <laughs> Better learn to skate, too. As if six months of winter isn't bad enough, some Canadians, like Vancouver native Marine Sharon, spend much of the summer on ice. Don't you want to warm up sometime? This is exercise. This is fun and it's exercise and it's social. Be warned, on skates, Canadians can be aggressive. Otherwise, they're so polite, it can be annoying. 
We're too apathetic. You're uh, apathetic. Totally too apathetic. We can't get a good protest or a good revolution happening for... <laughs> and sometimes it's necessary, right? Tonight, for the first time in uh, 27 years, the United August States has again 3rd. started a draft lottery. April 24th. During the Vietnam War, Canada accepted a flood of immigrants. As some 240,000 Americans fled the U.S. to avoid the draft. But over the last decade, only about 9,000 Americans each year have moved to Canada. You're Canadian now? I am, as of January. Sarah Roth is one of them. You know, I was used to New Yorkers just saying it like it is, and I think you have to be a little bit more um, polite here. You haven't given up baseball. Oh, you don't have to give up baseball. Did Roth's you know shirt may say Canadian, but she is a New Jersey native who was definitely born in the USA. When she moved to Vancouver for a new job eight years ago, she knew almost nothing about Canada. Probably if you had asked me who the prime minister was at the time, I may not have been able to answer. Baseball remains Roth's favorite pastime, but along the way to becoming Canadian, she has made plenty of adjustments. We really miss Trader Joe's. That's right, shoppers. There are no Trader Joe's in Canada. No Target stores either. Everyone loves Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons, the chain that has made donuts at National Dish in Canada. Rivaled only by the popularity of poutine, that hearty meal of French fries and cheese curds soaked in gravy. The funniest thing is that we have the British royalty in our money. To me, that was the biggest adjustment. And actually, when you become a citizen, you have to take an oath to the Queen. And bear true allegiance, bear true allegiance. to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Indeed, Americans who choose to become Canadian will find themselves living under the same monarchy the revolution defeated in 1776. Congratulations to you all. You are now Canadian citizens. Among the new Canadians sworn in at this ceremony was Jason Burchard, born and raised in Texas. You gotta be so emotional. Burchard moved here seven years ago when same-sex marriage was legal in Canada but not yet widely accepted in the U.S. He and his partner got married. Do you know the first letter in the Canadian alphabet, eh? Hey, yeah. <laughs> And I'm from Texas, so I say, hey, y'all. <laughs> if he was not already a Canadian citizen, he might well be among those Americans vowing to move here, depending on who wins the election. The U.S. is an amazing country. Hopefully it'll make the right decision in November. <laughs> if it makes what you would say is the wrong decision in November, do you think there's going to be a lot of people I'm, following you yes, here? maybe they want to build a wall. <laughs> While some Americans may be considering a move north, about twice as many Canadians move to the U.S. each year. This is as far north as you can go and still be on Canadian soil. And I'm one of them. I became a U.S. citizen in 2003. You're living in the United States. Have you lost your Canadian sensibility? Uh, you seem very polite, by the way. <laughs> I am, thank you. Yeah. Being a polite Canadian himself, Pete McMartin has nice things to say about why Americans will not, in fact, head north, no matter who wins the election. You know, it's just not like Americans to, to flee their problems. They seem to want to tackle things head on, rather than running away from Donald Trump or, or Hillary. 
So your decision in 1980, after all, was a good one. As for Barbara Kennedy, who you'll remember was so depressed when Ronald Reagan won the presidency. Things seemed hopeless. She did end up moving. <laughs> Got this far, didn't actually go up and cross the border. Just for fun. <laughs> to Seattle. Coming up, we've got mail. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. August 21st, 1961, 55 years ago today. A musical date worth writing home about. For that was the day the Motown label released Please, Mr. Postman. Recorded by the Marvelettes, who hailed from suburban Detroit, the song quickly became Motown's first number one hit. It wasn't long before the Marvelettes were performing their song on national television. While a cover version was recorded by no lesser group than the Beatles. In 1973, the Marvelettes version made a high-profile comeback in the Martin Scorsese film. We're not going to pay. We're not paying. No, why? And the song returned yet again in 1975 when the Carpenters released a cover version of their own. As for the Marvelettes, they went on to other hits but none as big as Please Mr. Postman. And by 1969, the group had disbanded. Though gone, the Marvelettes and their song are hardly forgotten, because when it comes to conveying the uncertainties of young love, Please Mr. Postman still delivers. Pilots ready, set, throw! Head. You want to lift the wings up so they're how paper took flight. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Many of us these days are reading the newspaper online, but many kinds of paper are on a roll. Martha Tyson this morning offers us a crash course on paper. You might want to take notes. They're just pieces of paper, but with a few folds and a toss. These kids created the magic of flight. Pilots ready, set, throw. Competing in the great paper airplane fly-off at the Pima Air and Space Museum in Tucson, Arizona recently, they probably were not marveling at making the magic happen. But paper is like that, known for what it does, not so much for what it is. Paper is at the center of so many of the uh, elements of the development of civilization. Mark Kurlansky has written a history of paper it's about communication and, and writing and thinking and art and science and architecture and mathematics and 
political movements, and that's why it's such a great story, you know? <laughs> a story that begins in China, where supposedly nearly 2,000 years ago, a eunuch in the royal court named Kai Lun invented paper. The Chinese were really the only ones to invent it. Everybody else just took the idea. For papermaking to spread from China along ancient trade routes to the Middle East and finally into Europe took a millennium. The name paper comes from papyrus, but ironically, the dried reed sheets the Egyptians wrote on were not really paper. It's very similar to 2,000 years ago, except we have electricity and we're using actually a partially processed 100% cotton today. But it's really the same thing where you're making a pulp. To make paper, some sort of plant fiber, wood, cotton, linen, hemp, among others, is beaten into a pulp and then soaked in water until it becomes what's called a slurry. Amy Jacobs is education director of Dieudonné, a paper-making studio in New York City. So we're going to mix up the pulp and the water that was added just a little bit. So the secret ingredient, cellulose. Oh, it's cold. It is cold. A substance in all plants <laughs> that acts like glue. It's fine. It all comes off okay. <laughs> very easily. And causes the fiber particles to bond together. There you go. Give it a shake in both directions. Until mechanization came along, this is how all paper was made. That's good. Voila. Wow. made a sheet of paper. Which became a problem in the Middle Ages when demand for books increased exponentially. So this is one of the original Gutenberg Bibles. Now this is from 1455? Yeah. The Gutenberg Bible was the first major book printed on a printing press using movable type, and it started a paper revolution. It showed that printing could work and uh, work well and be easily reproduced. And uh, to do that, uh, it really needed to be on paper. Fewer than 50 survive. The Morgan Library in New York City owns three. Now, what sort of paper would this have been? Uh, mostly linen, uh, linen and other rags. Rags, that's what almost all paper was made of then. So no rags, no paper, which is why Benjamin Franklin, founding father and famous printer, was in the rag business and owned paper mills. Pennsylvania, Franklin's home state, was the heart of early American papermaking. It was here, in the town of Chester, Pennsylvania, on the Delaware River, that in 1890, the Scott brothers came up with that great innovation toilet paper on a roll. By then, most paper was being made out of trees, not rags. Have you ever seen a two-ton roll of toilet paper? Next, turning these into human-size rolls. They do a regular bath tissue ballet. Minutes later, they're all packed up and ready to go. Two million a day from this factory alone. 700 million rolls, roughly a year. Jeff Hutter is operations manager at the Chester Mill, now owned by Kimberly Clark. We can basically wrap the entire earth a thousand times with all the paper that we make with Scott 1000. In a year? In a year. 
Americans used more than 77 million tons of paper in 2015, although we did recycle more than two-thirds of that. Back in Tucson, though, at the paper airplane fly-off, the statistics were of another sort. I'll take one corner. Ken Blackburn became an aeronautical engineer. You want to lift the wings up. Because he loved paper airplanes as a kid. Very good. Yeah, sure. Among the day's winning throws, Michael Thompson's was the longest. 104 feet. Not bad for a piece of paper. Still to come, in it for the long run. So how many miles a week are you doing up here? I'm probably doing 100 to 110 plus about another eight hours of elliptical ride. I feel great, I feel free. And later, backstage with Late Show band leader John Baptiste. Never give up. One man who knows the truth of that is a veteran American athlete who is running in the marathon today. That is one of the concluding events of the Olympics in Rio. Lee Cowan has his story. To watch Olympic marathoner Meb Kaflesgi train is to watch perfection. Every stride is like an artist's brushstroke. It's no surprise he's a hero to runners. For most, he needs no introduction. He's an inspiration. To, uh, to everybody. And we kind of think of him as the ambassador for the sport. He's a quiet celebrity, shy in a way, who this morning is taking his talent and his grace to the world stage in Rio. For me, it's just another race. I go out there and you know, do what I do best. This is Meb's fourth Olympics. He won silver in Athens back in 2004. But Rio is different. Meb, who emigrated from Eritrea at age 12, is now 41, making him the oldest American Olympic marathoner in history. I mean, do you feel older? You certainly don't look like <laughs> you're 41. God knows you don't run like you're 41. Um, I definitely feel the age, but once the gun goes off, I try not to be concerned about who's that 23-year-old or 25-year-old. I'm, I'm there to compete, to get the best out of myself, and try to be people as much as I can. We found him high in the mountains of Mammoth Lakes, California. He comes up to this thin air before every big race to push his body hard at altitude. So how many miles a week are you doing up here? I'm probably doing 100 to 110 plus about another eight hours of elliptical ride. Uh, he literally wrote the book on training. It's a 24-hour job because when you're resting, when you're eating, when you're recovering, when you're training, when you're cross-training, all those things, you know, are taking a toll on your body. Your mind never shuts down, I mean, unless you're asleep. Let's go, let's go, we need to go. Meb calls San Diego home. He lives there with his wife and three young girls. He walks them to school almost every day, about a mile each way. Morning, how are you guys? His study is lined with various honors, magazine covers, pictures of him at the White House. At a dinner, we were on his table. And of course, a fist full of medals. This is the Athens Olympics of a medal. Meb figures he's run over 100,000 miles in his long career. That's four laps around the globe and counting. I'm on my fifth lap, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a long way 
from his desperate beginnings in the African nation of Eritrea. He grew up one of 10 children in a war-torn village without electricity or running water and very little to eat. I just remember eating dirt for food because your mind tells you to, to look for something, you know, survival instincts, I guess. You just dig deep on the, on the ground and until it feels some, a little moisture and you just eat it and swallow it. Basically, that's, that's food, but, uh, you know, whatever you need to do to survive. That's my dad. With the help of the Red Cross, Meb's father managed to get the family to safety, fleeing first to Italy and then to San Diego as refugees. October 21st, 1987. You I remember the date? I remember the date when we first came to the United States and it's like a birthday for us or Independence Day. Meb's entire family crammed into this small apartment, surviving largely on food stamps. His father cleaned floors and drove taxis and helped them all learn English. So he used to wake up at 4.30 a.m. in the morning before. 4.30 in the morning. 4.30 in the morning and we would flip the dictionary word by word and that's how we tried to learn English. All nine of Meb's siblings went on to get college degrees, despite feeling like outsiders at first. We had different clothes and had Afro. Everybody was making fun of us. And tough, tough position to be in as a kid. He had never heard of running as a sport. He'd never even heard of the Olympics. Until his seventh grade PE teacher, Dick Lord, changed all that. Yeah, give me a hug. I got to have a hug from my favorite student. How are, How are you? you? It's good to uh, see you. Likewise, good to see you. It was back in 1988. Lord asked his class to run a mile around this playground as fast as they could. Meb was lightning fast. He ran it in 520, blowing everyone else away. Lord was stunned. But Meb had something special about him. He had, he had it in his heart. He wasn't very big, but I'll tell you, he had the drive. <laughs> He went on to get a scholarship at UCLA, winning four NCAA titles. As soon as he graduated, he got his U.S. citizenship. Over the next decade, he racked up an impressive career, including a brilliant win at the biggest marathon in the world, New York City, in 2009. For the first time since 1982, an American has won the New York City Marathon. But that's when Meb's patriotism came into question. Somebody said that I was not American enough because I wasn't born here because of the color of my skin, because I was born in Africa, is that what it is? Or how come some others don't have to defend their, you know, where they were born and because they're Caucasian? And it's hard, you know, you get that feeling a little bit, you, you kind of punch me on the, <laughs> below the belt. Oh, these last drives, that must be killers. That pain lingered until he ran what he still considers the race of his life, the Boston Marathon in 2014, the year after that deadly terrorist attack. His name is Meb Kaflesky. Of all years, the city really needed a win. Kaflesky's going to win it in 2014. And Meb delivered. Unbelievable. The American dream is right here. Meb Kaflesky wins the Boston. <laughs> he made the front page of almost every newspaper in the country as the first American to win that legendary race in 31 years. Suddenly, instead of questioning his patriotism, Meb's patriotism was all that mattered. Winning the Boston Marathon is the most meaningful victory in my life. And, you know, most Boston, Bostonians don't say congratulations, they just say thank you. This morning, as he represents the U.S. in Rio, he knows this will be his last Olympic marathon. But no matter what happens on the course today, Meb Kofleski 
has already left his imprint as an athlete, an immigrant, and most of all, an inspiration. Never give up on your dreams. Some dreams might come early, some people might come of 40 or 41. So keep, keep being persistent. Be the best human being that you can be and never forget your roots. Coming up, a pair of farewells. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It happened this past week, the loss of two remarkably talented men of remarkably different talents. Issue one, NSA, c'est la vie. TV host John McLaughlin died Tuesday morning, two days after missing his first show in 34 years. McLaughlin was a former Roman Catholic priest turned combative conservative pundit. A defender of President Richard Nixon, Issue one. He launched TV's feisty The McLaughlin Group in 1982. And say to John Tower, John, your time has come. In the interest of the party, yourself, and the Republic, you ought to withdraw your nomination. Has that time come? Dana Carvey did a memorable McLaughlin send-up on Saturday Night Live. Issue number five. What number am I thinking of? Pat Buchanan. (laughs) Jeez, uh, 82. Wrong, Uh, Eleanor Clift. Uh, is it between one Don't and a hundred? Don't the issue. Forty. Wrong. But love him or not, there was no mistaking the real John McLaughlin's verbal style, passion, and commitment. John McLaughlin was eighty-nine. Yes or no, Pat? Wrong. No. no, no, no. Yes. <laughs> no. The answer is yes. Bye bye. Fibush Finkel died Sunday of heart trouble. Douglas Wambo representing the side of justice, Your Honor. A character actor who started as a voice singer in New York's Yiddish theaters, Finkel went on to Broadway and TV. Mm, talks good, Judge. Lucky for me, his case stinks. Funny Winning guy. an Emmy for his role as an idiosyncratic attorney in the 1990s series Picket Fences. How dare you make a mockery of this forum? It's who I am. Brother Fast forward to 2014, when Finkel was performing a musical act with his sons sitting down at a deli with our Richard Schlesinger. We are the Jewish trap family. Flavish <laughs> <laughs> Finkel was 93. Oh, I love that sound. It's John Baptiste and Stay Human. Say hi, everybody. Coming up, bringing New Orleans to late night. From his performances on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert to his work outside the studio, John Batiste brings a joyful noise wherever he goes. He shows Michelle Miller just how he does it. (laughs) 
You done? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> do you just break out in song? Yeah. In the middle of the street? You gotta do your thing. And people don't look at you funny? They be looking, but I'm, I, I be going. It's hard not to look when musician and composer John Batiste and his Stay Human band hit the streets for what he calls a love riot. A love riot is a street parade that can happen anywhere. They're his way of bringing a classic New Orleans street parade to the people of New York City. They may not have had the ability to see us at Carnegie Hall or something like that. So we bring the music to them. I see what you're doing for, for everyone else. What does that do for you? I like bringing people together. I like making people who wouldn't normally relate to one another find something in common through live music experience and the genuine human exchange of that performance. And now he's sharing his music with millions as the band leader for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Oh, I love that sound. It's John Baptiste and Stay Human. Say hi, everybody. Now, did you have this image of what you wanted in a band leader, and did he fit it, or has he completely blown it out of the water? Well, I mean, in some ways, he's something new and a throwback at the same time. I mean, there hasn't been, like, a big jazz sound on one of these shows in a long time. You could say that music was the 29-year-old Batiste's first language, having been born into a legendary New Orleans clan of musicians. New Orleans has these musical families that generations go by, and there's talented musicians in every generation. And my family is one of those. He started playing in his uncle's Batiste Brothers band at only eight years old. And your family, you credit all the way with your success. My dad is, he was my first musical mentor. He, you know, he, he's a bassist and a vocalist, and I would see him performing, and he would always give me lessons about the music, about the business. Batiste took that fatherly advice and went in search of bigger stages. When did you first come to New York? In the year 2004, I graduated high school early and moved at 17 to go to Juilliard here. How did you feel when you got here? I felt like it was cool to be in a place that allowed me to explore all of my creative sensibilities. By the time I got to my senior year in high school, I had been playing on the scene and I felt kind of like I wanted something else, more options. And he didn't waste time exploring those options, playing countless shows, releasing five albums, and gathering a cult following. I don't know what people see in the band or what we do. I think maybe the common thread is joy and authenticity. All that joyful noise led to an appearance on Comedy Central's Colbert Report. Thank you, Mr. Baptiste, for being here. Uh-huh, yeah. Which, as Colbert himself tells it, is how he landed The Late Show. He sat down across from me, and he talked about improvisation. 
and he made a comment about how I like to have my questions all written out, but he liked to improvise. So I threw away my questions, and I pulled straight up to him, and I said, how are you? How are you doing? How Let's have you? a conversation. And I had one of my best conversations I ever had with a guest. People keep asking me who my band leader's going to be. Well, I like this guy. Hi, I'm John Baptiste. Baptiste and the Stay Human Band have settled into their late night home, garnering rave reviews for performances like this one. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. And what does the man in charge think? He's incredible. The number of people will come over here and sit down and go, I can't put forth while the band, the band is playing and the audience is still cheering. The number of people go, I can't believe how great that band is. This moment to arrive. But while John Batiste is enjoying his time in the spotlight, he's not at all worried about losing himself in the glare. So on this big stage, this big venue, this huge show, yeah. do you worry you might lose that voice, that authentic voice mm -mm. in the realm of all this going on, the fame, the fortune? No. 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 Because? Because I'm me. Ahead, children with an uncommon bond. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. An uncommon bond unites the summer campers that our Steve Hartman has been to see. All right, who's next? Go. Outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin, there's a kid's camp that has all the makings of a typical summer camp. Except the kids who come here share one exceptional bond. Throughout the whole camp, you always have supporters. It was easy to make friends because we were all so similar. Since 9-11, 5,000 kids have lost a parent because of war. And a few years ago, Camp Hometown Hero started as a way to bring those kids from across the country together. This is James House. His dad, John, a Navy medic, died in a helicopter crash in Iraq. That was in 2005, when James was just a month old. Can you explain to me, how can you miss somebody so much that you never met, really? I miss him because he's my dad. I might not have met him in person, but he's always with me. Over the years, James wanted to mourn, but says he couldn't really partly because his friends at home, while well-intentioned, weren't saying the right things. At school, when Father's Day passes, that's a big deal. And everyone's making little Father's Day cards, and I get a little sad. And they say, I know how you feel. But it's not the same. It's not the same. And here, I get to cry, and they can say, I know how you feel. And I know they know how I feel. And that's a great feeling. For many of the kids, this is their first chance to just let it out. To help in that effort, they do a balloon release where campers write messages to their loved ones. Dylan Simon lost his dad in 05. Dylan was a camper here for four years, but this year he's back as a counselor. My first balloon release was one of the hardest because I actually physically let go of 
everything that I was holding on to over the years. One, two, three! A lot of kids say the balloon release is the best part of camp. And at first, we could not understand why. There's nothing you could say to a kid to make them feel better when someone is gone forever. But then something magical happened. The kids started reaching out to one another. Not a word was said because not a word was needed, proving that sometimes all it takes to let go is the right person to hold on to. Still to come. What's your favorite dance routine from American in Paris? I think in the big ballet. A visit with actress Leslie Caron. Seems like that's different from that. I mean, they're all completely unique. And later. They're like fingerprints. On the trail to Joshua Tree National Park. Our love is here to stay. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. Leslie Caron and Gene Kelly were a perfect match in the 1951 film An American in Paris. Caron paid a visit to Broadway a while back to see the musical based on the movie, reason enough to revisit Jane Pauley's Sunday profile. Sixty-six years ago, Leslie Caron was 19 and on the cusp of stardom. Her screen debut, An American in Paris with Gene Kelly, was Best Picture in 1951. What's your favorite dance Number? routine from American in Paris? Uh, I think in the big ballet, I enjoyed the Toulouse-Lautrec one, Can Can. What about the chair? <gasps> God help me. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. This is 1951. Oh, censorship. Everything was too bawdy, too sexy. The lady from the censorship bureau came and saw it and said, this won't do. I said, what can I do with a chair? What's, what's <laughs> too sexy? So I had to do it again and tone it down. It's still pretty sexy. She'd been discovered at 16 at the Ballet des Champs-Élysées in Paris by Jean Kelly. The night Jean Kelly came to the theater and saw me dance, I wasn't supposed to be on the stage. The dancer who was picked was sick, so I did the part. What was it about that? young girl. I think uh, good luck happens to a lot of people all the time, repeatedly. I think the important thing is to recognize good luck and to make good use of it. You know, I wasn't beautiful <laughs> at all. No, no, Excuse no, no. me. No, I wasn't. Let's say I pretended then. You're the only things I love. But she acted that part. I know you love me too. With tender charm. Why, you poor darlings, you're trembling. As an orphaned ingenue beguiling a lonely older man, earning the first of two Oscar nominations in Lily. 
and another orphaned ingenue beguiling an even older Fred Astaire in Daddy Long Legs. It's strange because now you think twice about having an older man play around with a young girl. People weren't sensitive to that at no, all. No, no, no. Oh yes, Aunt, I understand. We don't marry, is that it? Instead of getting married at once, it sometimes happens we get married at last. In Gigi, thank heaven for little girls. They grow up every day in the most beautiful way. A teenage schoolgirl is being prepared for a life as a courtesan. As a courtesan, yeah. But instead of becoming Madame, a kept woman, will you do me the Gigi honor? finds true love. Give me the infinite joy of bestowing on me Gigi's hand in marriage. Gigi would go on to win nine Academy Awards, and Leslie Caron was a bona fide Hollywood star. But she no longer lived in Hollywood. Following the second of three husbands, Peter Hall, director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, to London. Hello, Leslie, Peter. Hello, Tom. Hello, sir. She appeared on CBS's Person to Person with Charles Collingwood in 1959. Leslie, does this mean that you finally put roots down here in London? My roots are wherever my husband and children are, really. Your film character, The Ingenue, is associated with all these older men. In your life, you didn't choose older men. Hmm, no. I chose talented men. Peter Hall, my husband. He was just a beginner when I met him. He had the capacity of being a great man of the theater. I could see that. What do you think attracted him to you? Because he buried the things that we most loved about you, the stage, the dance, the film, <sighs> and... I forgive him because it was, you know, his background in his milieu, Women stayed in the home and sent off the children to school. And that's what he expected of a wife. Ah, the children. Don't you wish you could have a, a chance to, to yes. do it again now? Yes. 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 I would say, now look here. <laughs> it was a different time. Yeah, different times. And it took a very long time for women to say, look here, I'm me. I exist. My life has to be fulfilled, too. In those days, would an actress imagine being the age of Jean Kelly or Fred Astaire and still having, no way, <laughs> roles? Forty and the door was closed. But today, doors seem to be opening for 80-something stars. I think it's the English who changed everything with the Maggie Smiths and the Judy Dentures, those wonderful actresses, suddenly the public said, hey, wait a minute, I prefer looking at those ladies who have experience and wits and wisdom. Why can't you be one of those? I am going to be. In fact, in 2007, she earned an Emmy for her guest appearance on Law & Order SVU. Why are you lying? You know it's true, Marty. You swore you wouldn't say anything. You grabbed that kitchen knife from the counter. You made me pull down my pants and you raped me. That was an astonishing piece of acting. Thank you. 
There's a poignant line in your memoir of some several years ago. The best years of my life are over. No, 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 no. You disagree with yourself yes, now? Yes, yes, yes. You would like to argue with the author of your memoir? Um, yeah. <laughs> if I wrote that, I... You did? Yeah, it's not true. Hand me that book. <laughs> I've circled it. The best part of my life is over. Now is the time to reflect. Okay, and I reflect that it's not <laughs> over. <laughs> and life coming full circle, she came to New York to see a play, the hit Broadway musical, An American in Paris, starring Leanne Cope as Lise, the role Leslie Caron created. Not many people get the kind of incredible gift that you and I were given. Mm -hmm. It's true. It does feel like Plucked, a gift. and there you are, on a silver platter, this magnificent part in a grand production. What did you think when Leanne, yes. in the role that you created in the movie, in the movie, when Leanne makes her first entrance, what did you think? She just bursts forward like a little jewel, like beauty, charm, modesty. You wouldn't expect that in somebody who plays the lead, and you quite understand that he falls in love with her. She really does it. Beautifully. Were you ever coming in and out of me, her, me, her? I could see the shadow of me way back, yes. The memory of what I was like. And maybe the audience could too. I'm having a wonderful time. I really relish it. featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Something else has been much in the news these past days, too much so in the view of contributor Paul Mercurio. Hi, I'm George Clooney. All right, don't blame me for lying. I'm a product of my environment. These days, lying is all the rage. Everyone's doing it. Of course, lying is nothing new. We've been doing it since the beginning of time. Remember this oldie but goodie? Go ahead, eat the fruit, it's good for you. What could go wrong? But these days, it's not the frequency of the lies, but the quality of the lies that's alarming. In my day, when you lied, it was a good, solid American lie that stood up to intense scrutiny. But today's lies are flimsy, as if made in a third world country. He took our money, he took my wallet. Yep, this past week, U.S. Olympic swimmer Ryan Lockheed took the gold, silver, and bronze the dumbest lie in the history of mankind, on an international stage nonetheless. And for what? To cover up breaking a bathroom door. <laughs> Ryan, what are you, six? It's like you weren't even trying to lie. You call yourself an American. In this country, we just don't make lies like we used to. Leaving Saddam Hussein in possession of weapons of mass destruction. Remember how Colin told us there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? George ordered us to read his lips. No new taxes. Pete swore he never gambled. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did and not. And Bill did not have sexual relations with that woman. I had no knowledge whatever of the Watergate break-in before it occurred. And who could forget the mother of all lies? 
Watergate. It took two years and millions of dollars to figure out this used car salesman was lying. Nowadays, it took less time to figure out Lockheed was lying than it took him to swim the 200 backstroke. And this is the real concern. There's such a complete lack of respect for the truth and others, along with a belief that even if you get caught, there are no meaningful ramifications, that people are literally lying to our faces. I did not email any um, classified material to anyone on my email. ISIS is honoring President Obama. He is the founder of ISIS. Look, I don't condone lying, but if you're going to do it, for God's sake, put in the effort. It's the only way we can make America great again. Now, if you excuse me, my wife, Mrs. Clooney, is waiting for me on our yacht in the south of France. What? She is. Of course, that depends on what your definition of is is. We head out on the trail next. Lovers of the great outdoors, circle this coming Thursday on your calendars. It was on August the 25th, 1916, that President Woodrow Wilson signed the act creating the National Park Service. As you know, we have been celebrating this centennial all year. This morning, Connor Knighton is on the trail again to a park named for tree that isn't really a tree. Their stiff and ungraceful form makes them to the traveler the most repulsive tree in the vegetable kingdom. That's how American explorer John C. Fremont described his first encounter with the Joshua tree back in 1844. But today, that bizarre, ungraceful form is exactly what travelers find beautiful. I don't know, maybe we tend to gravitate towards so many things that are linear in today's world. I kind of like the, the abstract nature of the trees. Michael Roy is one of the 1.6 million visitors a year who flock to Joshua Tree National Park, a place where the namesake attraction is a bit of a misnomer. Well, the one thing about it, you know, it's not really a tree. Um, it's a member of the yucca family. As a matter of fact, the Latin name is yucca brevifolia. It was called the Joshua Tree back in the 1800s when some of the Mormon settlers came through here and they thought it looked like the biblical character Joshua with his arms outstretched into the heavens. No, Ranger George Land I, uh, is the public information officer for the park. Um, so technically, so right. he um, speaks like for the trees. Mister, I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. In 1971, Dr. Seuss published the Lorax. The truffula trees, the bright-colored tufts of the truffula trees. And while his truffula trees were purely fictional, this slice of the Mojave Desert has become a destination for anyone who has ever dreamt of jumping into one of his illustrations. Yeah, it feels kind of like a big playground outside. And yeah, Dr. Seuss is exactly what I think of when I look around here. <laughs> But say Joshua Tree around the world, and the first thing to come to mind probably isn't a plant. Thanks to an Irish rock band's obsession with the American Southwest, it's also one of the best-selling albums of all time. You two probably did more to market the park than, than anybody in the world. Uh, it was a very successful album. A lot of people, particularly around the world that had never been to this part of the country, didn't 
know what a Joshua tree was. Unfortunately, U2 fans are often disappointed to learn that they still haven't found what they're looking for. The actual Joshua tree from the album was located close to Death Valley, 200 miles north, and died 15 years ago. But it's a disappointment that's short-lived, because with so many different trees to choose from, over 1.5 million in the park, you're bound to find the one that speaks to you. They're all very unique looking, um, in a way that it feels like they almost have their own personality. Do you see that when you drive by looking at them? Well, they're like fingerprints. And that's why you generally won't see any two mature trees that look the same. You got a gun on you, old man? You're damn right I got a gun on me. A coming attraction, up next. A new movie offers a different take on the Hollywood Western. David Edelstein has our review. Hell or High Water is the best movie I've seen all year, all last year, too. It's still haunting me, especially the last scene, a face-off, but not the kind you usually see in Westerns. It's not an old West Western. It's set in the present, and the West, here, West Texas, is a different place. There are still cowboys and Indians, except the Native Americans watch whites who took their land get their land taken by someone else, the banks. I've been poor my whole life. It's like a disease, passing from generation to generation. Chris Pine plays the rancher who was upright all his life, but for reasons we don't get until the last half hour, enlists his unstable ex-con brother, played by Ben Foster, in a scheme to get money fast. They target branches of the Texas Midlands Bank in small towns separated by large deserts. They're trying to raise a certain amount, that's my guess. It's gonna take a few banks to get there. The other protagonist is the aging Texas Ranger, played by Jeff Bridges. He doesn't think the robbers are the usual meth heads or sociopaths, but he knows that sooner or later, someone will die if only because he sees lots of ordinary Texans carrying guns, looking eager to use them. You got a gun on you, old man? You're damn right I got a gun on me. In most Westerns, violence seems the only possible resolution. But in Hell or High Water, the terrific British director David Mackenzie and screenwriter Taylor Sheridan have fashioned a great humanist Western. You know there will be blood, and pray there won't be because it's bound to be absurd and needlessly final. It's finality that's the true villain, meaning actions that can't be undone, bullets that can't go back in the barrel. The movie has a starkness, a terrible clarity that eats into your mind. It's a new classic Western. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.